it is a fact that we are not individuals in the sense that we believed we were a hundred years ago. But I do think as a pragmatic tool that that is the place to start to begin to make positive change in the world. And I think that on some level, every single person who's listening to podcasts on some level is interested in trying to improve the world. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. No thorough, comprehensive exploration of time would be complete without consideration of mythic time. Those of you who have been with this show for a while know that we don't just focus on the linear here, but also on the circular, cyclic, helical, eternal, fractal, all ways of spatializing and mapping something which may actually not be appropriate to spatialize and map. But each of these types of time are experiences that we can access as we move through a developmental circuit, as our ability to model our environments becomes more and more complex today. I have the distinct pleasure of sharing with you the second half of this wonderful conversation I had with Eric Godsey, with whom I very nearly almost lived in Austin, Texas, and uh, whom I consider to be a just exemplary individual. Eric's the kind of guy my anima wants to date, and part of what he offers the world is a study of the work of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, and the role of myth and archetype in our lives. If you haven't listened to my episode on his podcast, The Myths That Make Us, definitely go check it out. Uh, this one is more of a turning of the tables, where rather than listening to me gab on about all of the ways that our myths are insufficient to our experience of life, we get into all of the reasons to hold on to some kind of mythic structure. But before we get started on this curiously linear exposition of a profoundly nonlinear topic, I want to give a shout out and special thanks to the new people who have joined the Patreon community for this show recently. That includes Brent Gode, I hope I'm saying that right, Patty Dragonfly, Colin Frangisetto of Circus Survive, who I'm sure you've probably heard on other podcasts. Thank you, Colin. You'll be hearing him on this show before too long. And Ryan Sadler. All four of you join the delightful little scene that we have going on at Patreon, where we're about to do our second book club meeting where I have been and am about to drop additional secret episodes of this show. Your membership and involvement in Patreon really takes this show beyond the normal one-way communication and into something richer and more satisfying, I think, for all of us. So thanks, everyone, who's doing that. And even if you have no money to your name at all after paying for admission to the gated garden of infinite content that is your cell phone well then there are still very easy low-hanging ways to help this show including reviewing it wherever you happen to be listening to this you may not realize this but people look at the number of itunes reviews for a podcast when deciding whether to grant them press admission to interesting conferences or sponsorship opportunities, it really matters more than it should. And although I maintain that this show is an act of service with no expectation of reward, it still helps. And I appreciate the 120 or so of you who have reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. So thank you. Okay. Last little thing before we get started, I want to thank Mike Schwab of KnowYourMeme.com for being the show's featured Patreon supporter. Know Your Meme is a fascinating web destination for those interested in the archaeology and annotation of digital culture. It's a place where people come together to treat the lowbrow products of internet culture with the kind of scholarly sophistication that these new forms deserve. As visionary science fiction author Philip K. Dick was fond of pointing out, symbols of divinity 
initially show up at the trash stratum, which actually Weird Studies podcast episode 20 is all about that. Another way of putting it, and I've had a number of really interesting conversations lately about just where memes fit into the evolutionary scheme. Are they, in fact, the embodiment of parasitic forces inhabiting the emergent noosphere? Or is that parasitism actually the platform upon which a new, more inclusive and complete human language will be constructed? You decide at knowyourmeme.com. Get in there and figure it out for yourself. And thanks, Mike, for supporting the show. Okay, now that we have sailed through that turbulence and up to cruising altitude. Enjoy this remarkable conversation with Eric Godsey of the Myths That Make Us podcast, one of the cooler dudes I know, frankly. Enjoy. <laughs> Eric Godsey, welcome on board to Future Fossils. You are registered in the digital audio archives. Thank you for having me on, man. And I I really enjoyed the conversation that we had last week. Like it kind of fucked me up in the best type of way. That's a good conversation. Totally. I'm I'm looking forward to you fucking me up, sir. This I'll is do my uh, best. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a I think there's something not that we're sparring or anything, but there is something to in the collision of ideas and the like, you know, coming out of a, a really inspiring conversation with bruises being like, oh, I'm going to have to take some time on that one. So, yeah, a great idea. Reconstruct your map. And, you know, that's that's almost one of the most painful things that you can go through, you know, but it's beautiful. And it's, it's, it's why intellectual people explore, you know, hopefully it's to update the map. And I left the conversation last week with some broken bits of my map, you know, but that was good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's so actually before we, before we break any maps, right. Let's, let's make <laughs> one. Let's make yeah. one. Uh, you know, there's, there's that, uh, it's a, it's a, I forget. Oh my God. The quote in the on it shop in Austin, uh, we oh, make our so tools good. and our tools make us. Yeah. By uh Marshall McLuhan. Yeah. And so you're, you've got this podcast, the myths that make us. And uh, I'd love to hear about, you know, in the sense that the stories are tools, I'd Absolutely. love to hear about your, your story and, and how you came into uh, the decision and the practice of framing things in this way. Uh, for your benefit, the benefit of others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, huge question. Uh, it'll take me 28 years to answer, but I'll try to give you the synopsis. Great. Um, so when I was, I got introduced to a type of Christianity when I was, you know, young that was really broken and hollow and all the people saying it to me had dead eyes in my body, even though I didn't understand what they were saying, knew it was just whatever it was that they were saying wasn't it because I could just sense how they were saying it, that it just, it wasn't resonating. But, you know, the idea of heaven got introduced to me. And I remember uh, one of my most traumatic experiences as a kid was self-induced. And I think I was like seven or eight. And I was really trying, I don't know why, but I remember at night falling asleep, I would really try to contemplate what the best case scenario for this existence was that was explained to me. And I imagined this place in the clouds. It was all white. Uh, only good people lived there. I imagined that we were going to church every day. Everyone had to be happy. And I would be there forever. And I really started to think about what forever meant. And it was such a terrifying feeling that it would make me cry. And then I would pray to this God that I was taught was promising me this terrifying thing to please help me not think about it. And that went on for like a month and then it just kind of, I forgot about it. But in hindsight, I saw that that was kind of the seed for me becoming a pretty staunch atheist in high school. But I was an atheist that prayed. So at night I would pray to a thing that I didn't understand. And I would just basically say thank you because I thought all the people who were asking for things were, you know, stupid. 
and I was self-righteous. But um, that intensity into being atheistic, you know, had me always thinking about God and about religion, but as an atheist. And so I devoured everything from Christopher Hitchens. And um, around 19, I started to dabble in psychedelics, and that just completely messed me up in a way where I was having direct experiences that atheism, at least the way that I understood it, could not cope with it. And long story short, um, I kind of had a psychotic break. And then I found Robert Anton Wilson's um, Prometheus Rising right around that time that my, that if I had been under the supervision of my parents at that time, I lived alone. I would have probably have been sent to a institution of some sort, but thankfully I wasn't. And I used Prometheus Rising as kind of like a template to put my brain back together. And oh. my conclusions from that point in my life was essentially, um, so metaphysically, I'd say I'm a pragmatist, which is essentially that I don't think humans have the cognitive tools to know objective truth. So the best that we can do is come up with stories, which I do think are tools, and then we can test them out in the world. And then the ones that help us live the type of lives we want, we basically just adopt as truth. And um, I think that that's where the genesis started for the myths that make us. I think, so I went to school, I wanted to go and get a degree in philosophy, but the school I went to uh, didn't have a philosophy program. So I got it in psychology. And I ended up specializing in cognitive psychology, which is how the brain processes information, basically. And <clears throat> that's kind of been my philosophical and psychological foundation, which is humans can't know objective truth. We make up stories, but these stories are basically all we have, and some are better than others. And I'm kind of on a personal quest to find the best stories. Ooh. So that's interesting because, you know, there's a <laughs> not to like disappear into the meta too quickly. but uh, <laughs> That's where we're going. Right. Oh, we were going there. But, uh, you know, that's it's funny because the story that you tell is is a is a story that Absolutely. has proven to be useful to you in some way. Um, you know, it's not as I'm constantly reminded by people further along the contemplative path than myself. It's it's not. Uh, the truth about who you are, right? right? So I, I don't know how do you how do you see how do you turn the story in on itself recursively, and like you know make sense of the practical value of the story that you tell about your own life. It reminds me of the book Godel Escherbach which is kind of the book that precipitated my psychotic break because I was reading that book and then I did five grams of mushrooms and it completely <laughs> fucked me up. Yeah, I I was an idiot. But um, really how, because I completely see what you're saying. And I know it's like saying um, this sentence is false. Like to say that, <laughs> you know, like this is my story and we only have stories. Is that I don't take it too, I am not, I bring humor and humility towards what it is that I'm doing and what I'm inside because um, basically the way that I see it is most people I will ever meet are so far away from ever being outside of the illusion of their story that the most, the most effective I can be in this world, I think, at least while I'm young and my hormones are pumping in a way that are magnifying the intensity of my story is to try to share the most adaptive stories. And then maybe when I'm 68 or 80, I'll put my story down and realize that the truth the entire time is that I'm the thing that witnesses the story and that the story is an illusion. But I think it's a useful illusion. I think we have a meat suit that has been um, programmed with default stories it needs to run in order for it to survive and then to have children before it dies and that i think those are primal energies moving through all of us that if you tell a 28 year old you know your story is an illusion i i i honestly do, i think it fucks more people up than it helps especially those first 20 years and i think um 
especially in Western culture, it's, it's not the right medicine at the right time. I think that that mm-hmm. is, you know, something that I will let burn away, you know, the illusions of my story after my meat suit and the drives that are attached to it get a lot of the things that it wants. Mm. Okay. So, uh, in, in keeping with, I think you therefore qualify as, uh, what my friend Mitch Mignano, who I had on the show for episode 57 calls a psychedelic conservative. Interesting. In, in that, you know, you have this, uh, this sense of the season of one's life and like when, when it's appropriate to take on certain things developmentally and you're not just sort of pushing people off the cliff into the, the, uh, the void, Mm. you know? Yeah. I'd say that that's a good description. So, but then there's this other, there's this other piece, um, which is, and, 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 and I I see to support that, you know, I think, I think you're hitting on something really valuable and important here that is lost in the conversation around spiritual practice and spiritual awakening in our society anyway which is that it's not you know like we all want this stuff now you know that we all want to like free ourselves from you know the the illusion or whatever uh in in certain culture you know yeah but but that if we you know that the the traditions that we've appropriated you know the like yogic traditions and I think are, that that's the right word. Yeah, that, that that those those people, like you said, like you're sort of plotting for your own life, that Raja Yoga, you know, this this inquiry into the nature of mind, and you know, transcending the personality, was reserved for someone who had done all of the work right. of their like inhabiting their body and their breath already. You know, it was like the pinnacle of one's yoga practice. It wasn't yeah. something that you took on at 18. Right. So, I mean, but at the same time, there's a sense in which, and this is, you know, leading into this, this sort of friction I have with, between these two sort of views. I'm curious how you feel about this. Yeah. At the same time, we live in a world where this, the rate of information that we're exposed to, the amount of it, uh, it's, it's making it so that we, you know, like our stories are not lasting as long as they right. used to in terms of their utility. And like, there's, you know, I, I'm, I'm meeting uh, more and more people, people like Richard Doyle. Um, that I think we talked about him when I was on your show, but this, you know, brilliant Penn State English professor who's written all these books about biology and cybernetics and consciousness. And he and I have been having this conversation about how it's like the internet kind of makes the storytelling autobiographical ego obsolete because our, our, you just can't keep it coherent long enough for it to serve you in the same way that it did when they were inventing yoga thousands of years ago. So, I mean, do you think that, like, how do you think that stories have to change, I guess, is the sort of like synthetic point here uh, in order to accommodate the, the pace of life these days? Yeah, I think, um, for me personally, what it feels like it does is it, it just, it more quickly burns away the parts of the story that aren't archetypically true. But I do think that the archetypical points of the story are still true and will remain true as long as humans have the biology that they have. I think once we get to a place with CRISPR or AI where we fundamentally change the apparatus through which we experience reality, that these archetypical motifs might not serve us anymore. But as long as our biology is still as it is, I think that there are some core pieces, which I can try to lay out that I think still serve. And it's essentially, you have a conception of who you are and a lot of that, and that's your present moment. And a lot of that has to do with evolutionary drives and the internet isn't changing that, Mm -hmm. but it can, it can burn away the parts of it that aren't uh, archetypically sound. And then we all have an idea of the future self that we want to move towards. And that's a story also. Now, the, the part in the middle is what are the hypotheses for behavior that one 
engages in to transform who they are now into who they could be. And I do think that that is something that the access to information that we have now is completely scrambling. Because basically, I was talking to a friend today. I think most people who are trying, who, you know, who are interested in self-development, they are now happy to pay people who will just make them feel like they're doing the right thing right now. Because there's so much fucking information that a lot of very sincere people who want to improve could easily spend the next four years looking at the best possible diet to try without actually changing their diet for four years. And I just, you know, that's, that's not pragmatic. I don't think that that's helpful. So I think the core pieces of the way we construct our story still survive in the onslaught of information. But um, the third part of the story that I laid out, which is what are the hypotheses that one can take to transform who they are now into who they could be, that's the part that I think is most disrupted by the access to information we have now. Mm. So um, in, in that kind of a sense, also, there are, you know, like the hero of the story, I would say changes over time, right? Like a thousand Absolutely. years ago, even a hundred years ago, we were thinking of the hero as an individual sort of, you know, person. But now, uh, you know, part of that, that middle area that's getting remixed and challenged that you're talking about, it, who are we now? Uh, you know, it's, it's not as clear, you know, that this notion of an individual yeah. being like, you've got your, all these, you know, 90% of the cells in your body are not human cells. And, <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you know, we, we, we know that you're, that you are, uh, and you being all of us are really only defining ourselves socially and relationally. And so there's a, a sense in which I think that the, the individual hero myth has opened up to this collective dimension. Yeah. You know, where it's a story of a people or it's a story of a species or the story of a planet. And so we've got this weird like thing going on at multiple scales where. Yeah, and this is actually yeah. a really great point. Um, so one way to, con to conceptually see what I'm talking about is the map that I played out is a 2D map, but then there's like eight or nine stacks on top of that map. And there's the collective. Okay. And then there's, you know, like your friend group or your family. And then there's, you know, the place that you work or, you know, the tribe in which you live. Like if, if you're really connected to the people that you, that you live around and then there's state government and then there's species. And then, so there, there are multiple levels of this story that stack on top of it. But I think, so I'm really interested in the phenomenology of the, of, of life. And I think the phenomenological level that most people exist in at most points in their life and that I think the only phenomenological level that you can make change in is the individual hero story. So I completely agree with you that it is a fact that we are not individuals in the sense that we believed we were a hundred years ago. But I do think as a pragmatic tool that that is the place to start to begin to make positive change in the world. And I think that on some level, every single person who's listening to podcasts on some level is interested in trying to improve the world. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in what tools can we give people to help people suffer less psychologically. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the point that we touched on earlier, but if you emphasize the species level, um, story on an 18 year old who doesn't have the skills yet to even have a job to pay for rent. I don't think it helps them, even though it's true, you know? And so it, it like truly, and this is a conversation I, I don't get to have often, but most of the work that I'm involved in, that I'm interested in, I'm aware as I'm working on it, that I'm working within delusions or illusions, but I think that they are useful, pragmatic illusions for people that aren't either insane high IQ or just older. You know, I think that spirituality as it's shared now, you know, I, I do think that spiritual bypassing is, is a huge 
issue. And even though we have a word for it, I don't think that that's made it any better. And I wait, think- wait, wait. In the event that I know that you and I take this for granted, but in the event that people do not know about spiritual bypassing, lay it, lay it out for us. So my understanding of spiritual bypassing is essentially, and um, this is the way that I interpret it. So this is my subjective, you know, experience because I actually don't know a scholarly definition of it. But what I see it as is people who clearly have issues in their life that are clearly making them feel emotions and they're not owning the obstacle or the emotion and they're either retreating into a system or a book or they're claiming it in the, you know, in the relationship that is creating the obstacle that it's not a problem. And they'll cite some, you know, wise guru, they'll cite a book and they'll say like the big one is it's all perfect. Mm -hmm. Everything is happening as it should happen. And on some level, like I've been two places on psychedelics where I have felt that truth and nothing is more true than that. But I, you know, if your girlfriend cheated on you, you are feeling emotions. And to claim to yourself that it's all perfect, I think that you're just negating your reality. It's kind of hard not to do though, right? Like I remember I was hanging out at a party a few years ago with a guy whose cat had just died. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, but you know, every, you, the same, you know, textbook spiritual bypassing, everything is one, everything is perfect. Death isn't real. And my, I had a, a good friend uh, who also has been on this show, David Titterington, who was kind That's of a great last name. Oh, it is. He, 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 he makes the point that it means laughing town. Mm. So he's, he's like an entire community and he's a, a, a <laughs> long-term practicing Buddhist. So he's, He's totally down with the whole like plural identity. I love that. Stuff. But yeah, so David was saying, he was kind of picking at this guy's uh, scab, you know? He was like, well, yeah. but I mean, really? Like, do you really, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to like walk this guy into his wound. And I was like, dude, you know, you're treading on the tail of the tiger. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's, there is a certain degree to which it, it almost feels as though we kind of need to do that from time to time just to cope. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's sort of a tangent, but I feel like there's like a season for bullshitting yourself in that way. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that there's a, there's a, a stern grandfather energy in me that says, no, I don't think that you should <laughs> ever do it. But cause like, I think something that's really missed, especially, and I, I feel like I'm talking about this idea a lot just because of the community that I'm in. I, I hear these ideas a lot and there's, you know, you could call it the spiritual community, but there's such a misunderstanding of what the ego is. And there's a, there is not proper respect given to evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology and the fact that we have a meat suit that has default programs into it where it will process things in a very specific way. And if something you love died, you, the animal thing that is a part of you that, you know, you get lost in the illusion that you think you actually are it, but you know, you're experiencing through it. It needs to grieve. It needs to cry. It will feel sad. It will feel, you know, anger. It will feel like it might want to curse God. And spiritual bypassing is really, I, I think it's just, it's, it's using a, a non-adaptive map and the energy that's being stored in your body will need to be released at some point. And so, you know, it might be right for you now to not face it, but you're, you know, I, I think the metaphor that I use to interpret the psyche is kind of psychodynamic and like that energy will build up. And it will need to be faced at some point. And the longer you resist it, you know, it feels like the more potent the explosion or the release is going to have to be. Mm, yeah, definitely. It's like a, what Osho said, beware the pacifist because they're, they're sitting on a volcano. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Which is a funny thing, you know, given his whole story. But 
For sure. <laughs> yeah, man, it's, 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 it's so interesting to really look at any of the big spiritual leaders from the last like 50 years and the more that we learn about their life, you know, like it's the most common logical fallacy, you know, ad hominem where you attack the person instead of their message. But I think spiritual teachers are the one type of teacher where I don't think it's a logical, I don't think it is a logical infraction to actually look at the person who is speaking the idea, you know? Mm -hmm. Say more about that. Yeah. So like, if they, I'm know, about, they're going to say, they're going to say that nobody's there, right? Like that's their whole phenomenological stance is that. And we are just talking about spiritual bypassing too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess, right. Yeah, no. And I think that this is great. So like if I'm a biologist and you know, I'm Darwin and I came up with, you know, uh, survival of the fittest, even though that's not a term that he actually used in the origin of species, but, and you're attacking me as a person saying that I'm lazy or I'm stupid. Like that's a logical fallacy. You're not engaging with my idea. But if I'm a spiritual teacher and I say love is everything or, you know, treat everyone as you would treat yourself, but I'm Gandhi and my wife is sick and I don't let her get access to Western, you know, vaccines, but I get the same sickness and I allow myself to take it. I think that you can attack the person for that. What else do you see as maladaptive stories? Because we, you know, you're talking about like useful stories. Yeah, for I'd sure. I'd love to hear you go into into like what what stories you've learned to be most useful and what stories you've learned to be least useful. It's such a cliche at this point now, but I do think that uh, kind of the the way it's been systematized in popular scientific culture in the West is that the most adaptive story is a growth story. Essentially, you know, the core idea is you are the thing that can always transform and grow and you are never fully developed and you're constantly growing. And that's almost kind of like the ethos of um, manifest the destiny and the whole idea of trying to like move West. And I think the least adaptive story is where you think that you're a noun and not a verb and that you're done and you're just, and life is happening to you. Um, I, I wish I could find a more eloquent, beautiful way to explain that, but I think it's, th it's, th it's that simple. The most adaptive story, the, core pieces of the most adaptive story. Cause I think for most people, you have to make it sexy, you know, in order for it to really latch on. But the core idea is you are not a noun, you are a verb and your consciousness is invincible as long as your meat suit is still alive. And so you can deal with a, with such a greater amount of sorrow and difficulty than you think you can. And you are the thing that transforms. And as long as your heart is beating, you can grow, you can adapt and look at everything that happens in the world as feedback that you can use to learn from. And the least adaptive story is you are a noun. You have to endure. And the world is happening to you and you don't have any influence over improving it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that one's hard to get out of in some ways right now, especially, you know, because I think everyone is, I was talking about this with Daniel Schmachtenberger, that like everyone is so... You have friends with the dopest last names. Oh, man. You know, I mean, I'm sure you know him, actually, Daniel. I know of him, yeah. Yeah, at Neurohacker. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and, and, you know, the elephant in the room being that that your myth seems to have exploded since moving to Austin and, and coming to work for on it. And like, maybe we get to that. For on this sure. Call. Absolutely. You know, I think that's a really, that's, there's something about, you know, the, the container and the, the context and the community and, and so on that supports Absolutely. these different myths. And, and obviously that's a very inspiring place to work, but at any rate, there's Dan, Daniel and I were talking about how disempowered people feel these days because yeah. we're, we're, exposed to all of these horrible things happening all over the world that we truly have no 
way to react to. Yeah. No, you know, there's nothing that you can do except maybe like text some money to the earthquake survivors or whatever. It's not like, you know, so, I mean, how do you see that kind of broken yeah. loop in terms of like, how do, how do you, how, how do you adapt to that kind of an issue? How do you Absolutely. deal with that obstacle? So almost any time a really tragic world event happens that enters the zeitgeist, back when I was on Facebook often, I found myself always saying basically the same thing, which is something like what happened is terrible. Um, it's true that when I really connect to the event that I find myself crying, but then it brings me back to, okay, you know, the most effective level of resolution to interpret reality is the individual myth. And what can I do today to bring a little bit more love and compassion and order into the universe? And it's how do I treat people when I'm driving? Do I call my mom? Am I patient with people that I work with? Do I genuinely try to make people laugh? Do I pick up garbage that I see on the side of the road? Do I treat people who I am in relationships with, with dignity and respect and love? Do I speak the truth when I'm on a podcast? Am I working as hard as I can to create things in the world that could help other people? Do those things. So when something tragic happens in a place in the world that I cannot affect and I feel horrible about it. Like I feel truly like the wound happened to a part of my tribe. I really try to focus on what can I do today to bring a little bit more love, compassion, humor, and order to the universe. Because I truly believe that if I bring my life just 1% closer to my highest potential that I'm actually improving the world in a really tangible way. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, you, you have me thinking about this, uh, this question, which is, you know, you, what you're, what you're describing here is that it's like, if you keep your focus on the right scale right. of phenomena, exactly. You have, you actually do have so much more impact. And it reminds me of this, this question I have, I've been asking myself lately, uh, which it sounds like you've already answered. And I guess I have too, which is, is it better to be and replace the gendered language however you want, but right. is it better to be a good man or a great man? Because, you know, I think about like so many of the people in history were shitty parents. Right. You know, that like the people oh, that, I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, that like they they wanted to change the mm. world, you know, and like I think about that I was I was just reading about Lord Byron, you know, whose whose daughter sort of invented or foresaw all of, you know, electronic media, music and digital yeah. art and all this stuff, Ada Lovelace. And Lord Byron was a was a prick who like yeah. kicked kicked her mom and baby Ada Lovelace out of the house and then like left the country and died young on some sort of foolish, romantic, poetic errand. Yeah. And, and like, okay. So like, yeah, he was a great, there's so poet. many examples of that, man. Yeah. But he was a shit father. Right. So yeah. like, that seems to be about what you're saying is like, if you, if you focus, if you, if you try to change the world, then you lose sight of, the way the some of the most meaningful ways that you can change the world maybe I don't know. yeah and the thing that i would um poke at there is i think it's a false dichotomy and i think it's but i know exactly what you mean by is it better to be a good man or a great man and my answer is i think about it almost every single day about the dreams that my ego has about how i can help the world but that my absolute primary focus is it has to be done in a way that allows me to give the best hours of my day to my children and my future wife. And I know that my truth is that in order for me to give my best self to my family that I hope to have one day, I have to do meaningful work 
every day before I engage with them. And so I want to be, I'm going to strive to be great. But my definition of great, the primary thing is I, if when I die, my kids and their children aren't proud of the type of human I was to them, I will not have been a great man. But mm -hmm. I want to try to make the largest possible impact on the greatest number of people that can be positive while also my primary goal being to be a loving, decent father and husband. Dude, you know, the, I, I, I tell people that the slogan for this show is be good ancestors. <laughs> but, yes. you know, it's, fr fr strangely, I feel like it's something that I love doesn't, that. the actual strategies for how to be a good ancestor don't often come up on this show. <laughs> so well, you're, I'll do my you're best. Driving to the core, man. Yeah, and I think so. Here's where I'm at right now with that: is that accept the game that you're in. This is how I talk to myself, and I don't see capitalism going anywhere in a fundamental way. Period. And I could be wrong, but that's how I see it. So, how? can I cultivate myself to be able to play the game, which is a mixture between capitalism and the type of governments that are transpiring in the world where I have enough resources and autonomy to do the type of work that I want to do. And then to also be able to show up for my family. And, you know, it's why I work like 14 hours every day and, you know, the, the truth is because I don't yet quite know how to do it. And I'm trying very hard to learn psychology and business and marketing and still trying to maintain my soul while trying to learn business and marketing and branding and all that shit. And the way that I see it is because the type of work my soul wants to do, which is like deep, curious work that I would like to do like three or four hours a day uninterrupted exploring the ideas that I want to explore, I'm going to have to be able to create my own business. And it doesn't need to be a huge thing, but it needs to be enough where it provides me the container to do that work. And then also to support my family inside of the game that we're in. And, you know, I think core pieces of that when you don't know what to do is you should probably journal often and um, find some type of contemplative practice to hone your mind and just continue to try shit and then see what works. So I am super curious as someone who applied for multiple jobs yeah. at Onnit over the years I was living in Austin. And, you know, I had, I came in and had multiple conversations with Aubrey, whom I deeply respect. And I think it's a, I think it's a mutual thing. I think he, He's always been very charitable with yeah. me, but I never found the fit. And I'm curious to know from the outside and somebody who found, you know, a better fit over here at the Santa Fe Institute, you know, so I'm like a company guy now and you're a company guy. Right. And I'm curious about the way that you find that this, this work environment and the kind of work you do there and the culture of this place supports you in this kind of stuff, because, you know, I'm thinking a lot these days about how, you know, I mean, my kid is due next week, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> we need to have more conversations, man. Yeah. And so like, this is, you know, it's, it's the sense of, um, there being, I, I, I firmly believe that we're, we're trending towards a future in which I'm sorry, I have to drop a citation in here of a book I haven't read, Hansi Freenock's Listening Society. This guy, he's a fake philosopher mm. that a bunch of Europeans came up with, and uh, a couple of them. And uh, they've been using him as a, as a, as a sort of post-ironic mouthpiece through which to espouse all of these radical ideas about the future of society. And one of the things that they say is that, that you know, as our work spills out, of the nine to five and encloses the rest of our lives, that it means that more and more people have to bring more and more of themselves into the workplace. And that, you know, that as, as the workplace comes with you, that you, that we have to find a way to reorganize companies 
so that well, for, you know, like what Aubrey calls total human optimization, right? Like that, that you're really thriving and, and bringing everything that you can to your job. And I'm curious what that actually looks like in your life. And, and, you know, as a, as a sort of, I don't know, prophecy of, or of like what could be for more people. Yeah. <laughs> 10, 20 years. Yeah. So there's a lot in there and I'm going to try to see, uh, yeah, sorry. if I can, no, it's, this is good. Um, so the reason that I think I got here and it fit is that, um, I'm kind, I'm, I'm obsessed with a star in the sky that's around the same star that Aubrey's obsessed with. And I approach it fundamentally different. And I just, I consume so much of his content that like a part of my mind just effortlessly runs as, you know, Aubrey. And he released an online course that I took and it was the first course that I ever bought. Cause, um, of course, when I was a kid, you know, like in my early twenties, I was like, fuck that. I don't need anyone telling me how to do anything. I'll figure it out on my own. You know, which is a thing that a lot of people who think that they're smart and they're young, they hold on to that belief pretty hard. And I took the course and I was very active in it, like in the Facebook community that came along with it. And I applied one day and because of um, how much my name was coming up in the Facebook group, they recognized my name and I basically, you know, got hired. But I think that this gets to the larger point of what your question was, is that I personally do not make and it's how my soul stays alive is I do not make a distinction between who I am outside of work and who I am at work. And I'm fortunate enough to work at a place where I don't have to hide who I am. But even at this job, I'm probably one of the most, um, what's the right word? I make comments that make other people start to look around and they're nervous. Cause like, they're like, did, did he just say that at work? And it's because I do think that you're right is that we're moving into a point where you don't, it's, it just, it doesn't serve you to be someone on your social media that you're not. It doesn't serve you to be someone that you're not where you work, at least not in the long run. Like I totally get that there's thousands and thousands of people who are at a company where if they were who they truly were, they would get fired. So, you know, you, you have to bring a level of strategy to this. But the way that I approached it when I worked at a company that was not like on it is um, I had a blog and I was completely myself on the blog, but nobody read the blog. But it, it, it was my place to start just fucking being who I am. And, you know, now I work at a place where I can be a lot more public with who I am. Like who I am is someone who takes LSD who does psychedelics, who, um, you know, has tried open relationships, who is trying to create his business while at this business. And I'm, I'm transparent about it. I don't hide it. And I think, you know, I was just having this conversation with somebody today, but do your job better than anybody else could do it. And then nobody can question you. And then just, uh, politely, and with some strategy, make your shit on the side. That's that's how I'm approaching it. And, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. It's interesting to hear the thought that you might be like a maverick, even even there. Absolutely, um, dude. <laughs> but like, but I mean, but clearly, you know, clearly you are like supported in by the culture of this place that puts so much attention on the improvement of the individual and this yeah. kind of, you know, like the course that you're talking about, I assume is go for your win. Right. Yeah. yeah. So like this, you know, this is entirely about personal empowerment within. <laughs> yeah. Know, that's a good point that I've never really thought about, but it's almost like, it's almost as if, um, because that course was such a part of the CEO of the company's heart that it's almost like to negate what I'm doing would be a breach of the core ideology of the company. Yeah. It's so it's an interesting alignment. And like, when I see you I haven't thought about starting, that until now. Hmm. Yeah, you're, you're starting your own podcast, you're starting to offer your own, you know, your, your services and, and, you know, it, it's, it, I can very easily see this becoming a similar kind of 
you know, the apple not falling far from the tree kind of situation where Eric Godsey is known in 10 years as this hugely inspiring person by millions of people. And it's, it's almost like you're the, like the apprentice in empowering people. And I'm, I don't know. It's just curious to me how that, how that actually, I don't know, appears in the work environment, like how that is, you know, how that is supported in, in, in ways that other organizations could learn from. I don't know. Maybe I'm digging for something too mundane. No, I think that this is a really good question. And I, I truly honestly think it is a testament to the character of Aubrey. I think people who don't know him can project all sorts of shit onto him, but 99 out of a hundred CEOs, I don't think would let what I'm doing transpire. Do you know what I'm saying? And that you, like, like trying to fold it into the brand a little deeper, maybe well, just that like, um, we've had one-on-one -on -one explicit conversations where he says his vision for me is to build my platform. And like, it truly is a testament to his lack of unconscious egoness that he would even allow this. Like, but I'm also like, I work more than almost anyone here. And that's not an ego claim. Like I, I show up at 6 a.m. and I'm here and it's almost 7.30 p.m. and I'll probably be here until eight. And, you know, I crush my work. And so it's, it's, it's me doing my other stuff is not inhibiting me doing what I need to do. And I'm constantly like, trying to over deliver my value. So it's not a problem, but I do think that it is something that other companies like should, you know, and who the fuck am I to even say this, but I think that you will get the most out of your employees or the people that you work with. Like I really, I'm starting to see companies as like intentional tribes and you will have a more effective tribe if everyone in the tribe feels that they're free to cultivate their true identity and like the way that I talk and like what I do, this is me. This is, this is what the question that is Eric that has been posed to the universe is answering as its response. Hmm. And he allows that to be, but you know, don't get it twisted. I work for him and I, I deliver on my job description every day. Mm. Yep. That sounds, that sounds like you've been uh, deeply contemplating the, the reconciliation of individual and collective. I just re-signed my contract here for another year. Congratulations. And, yeah. And it's, thanks. And it's that, it's that same kind of thing. It's a lot of what you're saying is really, really true to my experience. I feel like in a way I'm kind of, stunted by not having this kind of institutional experience earlier in my life. Mm. I think my father, my father would certainly agree with me, <laughs> 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 you know, that, that there's, there's a, there's a team sports dimension. Absolutely, man. And, and that if people, I think, you know, like in a sense, you're in a really good place because I guess this is the sort of ulterior motive, uh, you know, like that I was angling towards um, is that, you know, a lot, our culture encourages people to fledge into being their own brand way too early in the same way that people, <laughs> like, that people are like encouraged to fledge into non-dual egolessness. Yeah, way that's, too that's early. a great point. Yeah. And I, I don't know. So like, there's something about, uh, there, there being a developmental degree to this that I feel like maybe you could speak to. If you I know where you are in your story. Yeah, I cannot, I cannot underestimate the amount that I have learned in the last year and a half because I put down my ego and I stopped trying to do everything alone. And I joined an organization that I believed in. And the reason I am what I am right now is because I joined this organization and I fucking gave it everything. For like a year, man. Like I truly like I have worked every single day other than when I've been sick, basically the last year and a half. Um, I, I took time off for Christmas 
But other than that, like I work every Saturday and every Sunday, but it's because there's such a tremendous amount of shit to learn that is technical by being a part of a real functioning organization. And like when I see people who are life coaches on Instagram and they're 23, it's like, I'm, I'm not <laughs> trying to hate, but you, that's not the right move. Like the right move if you're 23 is to learn a very specific skill and then you can be a consultant to other people to do that very specific skill. And then as you consult for like eight years and you've tried to do a lot of self work, then maybe you can transfer over to being, you know, like a, a life assister or something. But I think that that's a great point. And I, I don't even think of it as a brand. I think of it as a soul. Like, and that kind of sounds cliche, but I'm trying to cultivate my soul and I'm trying to do it publicly and people who resonate with that resonate with it. But I, I truly, I know that I'm in a position where I get to say, like, I don't care who follows me or how many people follow me because I have people who do follow me. But that's the truth is I'm the judge that I care about. Like, I, I truly believe that we each have this conception of our highest potential and that that is basically the closest thing that we will ever have conceptually to our God and that that thing is inside of us and it's watching our lives and it knows all of our bullshit. It knows when we're lying. It knows when we're deceiving, when we're manipulating, when we're playing small and truly my highest ideal in this life is to be in alignment with what I think that thing is and to try to do it publicly. Mm. So that's that maybe that's the question that we can pull this in on, which is there is a sense I realized a few years ago that, you know, after my entire twenties were a mess. I'm sure a lot of people can relate <laughs> to this that like, you know, I feel like I, like I said, I, I feel like I'm getting a late start here. I'm actually, you know, in a lot of ways, you're a few years younger than me, but I feel like in a lot of ways, you're, you've got more figured out than I do. And I think I just sound more certain when I talk, but I appreciate that. <laughs> but okay. So that's actually it though. Right. Which is that at some point, you know, after just a, a decade of getting, of, you know, trying to build equity in one community or company or, you know, situation after another and things just like, I feel like it's like Mario Brothers when you're on the floating platforms and you got to keep <laughs> running and they keep falling out from under yeah. you. So like I, huh. after a decade of that, I, I, I was like, what the hell even am I? You know, yeah. like wh who am I? What am I good for? Because I don't seem to be good at this or this or this or this, you know, and I, I feel like I have all these skills, but they're not aligning somehow in a meaningful way. And something about like coming of age around the same time as social media really took hold of yeah. society. I realized exactly what you're saying, that there was a sense in which the, you get that real time feedback, you know, you see when you like, you despair and you admit to the world that you don't have no clue what you're doing and that you're, you're like <laughs> lost in the turbulence and complexity of life. And it gets like 200 likes in an hour and a half. And like generates yeah. all this conversation and you realize that, you know, like, and people are thanking you for being this vulnerable and this honest and this frank. And I, and I realized at some point that like, especially in an era where people are, when it's getting easier and easier to just find answers, they're not necessarily good answers, right? Yeah. But they are, <laughs> but they are answers to your question. Uh, often, mutually exclusive opposing answers, but whatever. Yeah. Um, that the, that there's something really valuable about being honest with folks about the questions that you're holding and, yeah. and that that is actually more valuable than offering answers to people. So I'm really, when you say that you're, you're living an answer to a question that your soul is posed. I'm really curious if, you know, what, what are the questions, the deep questions, the shallow questions that animate you? And I, yeah. and then, you know, offer those as like the kind of questions that you might offer as 
as like algorithm initiating scripts mm. to our unborn future audience. Like what are the good ones, man? <laughs> okay. So, um, what was the first coping mechanism that you started running as a child? And for me, the first question was, why is mom sad? And how can I make it better? You know, and I think that that's kind of my core question is why is what used to be mom that I now project onto culture? Why is it sick? And how can I make it better? And I think the reason that I have so much passion is because I haven't tried to change my, you know, you could call it trauma, but my, my core um, delusion, you know, because the infant is delusional and thinks that whatever is happening around it is its responsibility or it's, or that it was the cause. And I haven't tried to reprogram it. I've, I actually have tried to focus it in a way that is actually, you know, good for the collective. So I do think that the first question is like, what was your first coping mechanism to the world? And how can you channel that towards making the world a better place? Which sounds like a cliche, like true. Like I did a ketamine or I, I, I injected, I had a doctor inject ketamine into me. Uh, and it was the first time I ever did ketamine. And I had this really, I had a really religious experience on ketamine, but I didn't see anything. And it felt like, my awareness was like a thousand miles above the earth and the earth was Eric's ego. And I could hear the song Eric was repeating. And the song was, um, I'm doing my best to manifest the kingdom of heaven. And you know, the rationalist in me right now that hears those words is like, where the fuck is that coming from? That's not language that I use in my waking life, or it, it wasn't language that I used in my waking life before that experience. And I truly think that um, one map that you can use to categorize all people is all people, they're either trying their best to manifest the kingdom of heaven, or they're trying their best to manifest pandemonium. And people are either pointed at trying to bring the world, because truly when I think when anyone says the world, they're anthropomorphizing my conscious experience of reality to the world, because I think that all we can is actually experience our perception, which feels like the world. And you're either trying to improve that condition or you're adding chaos to that condition. And my way of trying to bring order or to manifest the kingdom of heaven is I'm, anthro I'm projecting what I tried to do as a five-year-old, which was taking responsibility for my mom's depression. And I'm just, I'm projecting that out onto culture now. Mm. That's a fine question. You know, that's a, I think that's a really useful, you know, point, point the inquiry into the original wound. And then instead of trying to fix it, channel it is the way that I think about it. Like, I think that that's the most effective way to use how the energy has condensed around your story um, to be the most effective is channel it. And so I'm obsessed with psychology and the ways that psychological insights can be shared to the greatest number of people in the most effective way. And, you know, I think the primary question is what is the thing that I am most passionate about doing that I would be willing to try to do my entire life that could help the greatest number of people that could also make me money. And that last part took me fucking 27 years to even allow myself to accept, you know, but I think that that's the game that we're in. And really, I think a better way to articulate it is what is the thing that I'm most passionate about that I could seek mastery in my entire life? that could help the greatest number of people and that and that the game that I'm within will reward me for playing that way. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, dude, I, I feel like you're helping me reshape my myths, which in turn will, you know, as a matter of course, reshape me. Um, where would you, <laughs> where would you send people to engage with you in this obviously useful process <laughs> of discovering that they are a process? <laughs> yeah. Um, so because I work a lot, I'm really only active on, um, Instagram and, you know, I've started my podcast, the myths that make us and, I have a website, erigazzi.com, and I have a weekly newsletter that I send out every Friday where I just kind of share like the dopest pieces of information that I'm currently interacting with. And so if you want to stay up to date, I'd say go to my website and um, check out the podcast if you're interested in the way that I yap. I want to apologize for how certain I seem, but <laughs> strong opinions loosely held is, you know, the way that I think about it. And you can follow me on Instagram. So, okay. So your name is not spelled the usual way. Uh, E-R-I-C-K-G-O-D-S-E-Y. Awesome, dude. Eric, thanks so much for being on the show and good luck with all your questions. <laughs> Thank you for having me on, man. And I appreciate how gracious you were in letting me yap. Because when you were on my podcast, you were bringing the fucking flames. I, I could feel that you dropped back into interviewer mode, and I appreciate that. Dude, I try, man. It's You got to remember, like recording podcasts at the end of the day, I got to remember that I've been drinking caffeine all day. <laughs> <laughs> I got to like take a step back. For sure. Let the wisdom speak. Well, right that makes on, me man. feel uncomfortable, but thank you. <laughs> Cool. Let's, let's pin it there. Yes, sir. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, the Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.